Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it, he is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J-Rules Podcast. Welcome aboard. Greetings, my good people. How are you? What is happening? What is going on? What is the latest and greatest? How's everybody feeling out there? Hope everybody's doing well as we've, sadly, come to the unofficial finish line, meaning the ending of summer as it is Labor Day, which pretty much means the beaches will close, no more pools. Pretty soon we're going to have to put away the flip-flops, the tank tops, the swim trunks, shorts, short sleeve shirts, etc., and have to dust off the hoodies jeans, scarves, sweaters, jackets, even boots there, I say. Ugh. So not ready for cool weather to come. So not ready for pumpkin spice lattes and pumpkin this and pumpkin that. Uh-uh. I didn't want to hear anything about that. But all I want to hear is for you guys out there that come to listen to me and what I have to say about what's happening in the world of sports. Well, this is the right place to listen to it all here on the latest edition of the J Reels podcast. This is your host, J Reels. For my first timers, welcome aboard, and for those who have been banging with me for now 153 episodes, I welcome you guys back. Again, Labor Day Monday, September the 7th, in the year of our Lord 2020, the J Reels What's the Deal segment, what to expect here on this podcast is as follows, what in tarnation happened to Novak Djokovic yesterday at the US Open as he strikes a tennis ball, hits a line judge, and before you know it, he is disqualified from the tennis tournament being played out in Flushing Meadow. I'll get into the latest and greatest there, as well as... Will there be an asterisk next to the champion as Djokovic was the heavy favorite to win this tournament? I'll touch on that. And sadly, we mourn not just one, but two baseball legends that have left us too soon in a one-time Seaver and Lou Brock as 2020 continues its ruthless and relentless attack on this year with everybody and uh, just brutal. We'll touch on their careers as well as the Yankees. What is happening with them? Talk about a team that's floundering. I understand not at full strength. But you got to wonder what the Yankee fan is thinking this morning as they're right now in third place in the AL East but still in the playoff hunt. I'll touch on that. As well as, are you ready for some football? Three days away from the opener in Kansas City, I have some NFL over-under numbers to go through as well as a bunch of signings, even releases as a lot of players were cut. So we'll get into all of that. Also, what's happening in the bubble as the Bucks have been the story. Giannis's ankle. Will he return for game five? Chris Middleton had to save their season and... Their team's face yesterday, considering that they would have been swept out of this postseason. We'll get into everything that's happening in the bubble, as well as a very surprising coaching hire in Brooklyn. Also, my hero and zero of the week. And speaking of surprises, who doesn't love a surprise? I get that they are bad surprises. Some that you do not expect, that blindside you, that could actually rock you to your knees. Unfortunately, that's how life is. It's how we respond to that and what we learn from that to make us bigger, better, even bolder as we prosper and go through this life but the good surprise is what I want to talk about and it's actually twofold because when I think of surprises especially when it comes to the world of sports and even my teams for that matter number one I look back to the 2005 Steelers where they were a sixth seed in the AFC 
and they went through the AFC, even beating the mighty Colts at that time with Peyton Manning, and then having to go to Denver in the mile-high altitude to beat the Broncos, and then to win an anticlimactic Super Bowl, as I've talked about in previous podcasts. But they finally did get that Super Bowl trophy, the fifth one that was eluding them for 25 years, and that was a run that, obviously, I'll never forget. Then in 2015, with the Mets, now granted, they didn't win the championship that year, but with the trade for Ioannis Cespedes, the two months after that, playing at an MVP level, beating the Dodgers in five games, going ahead to sweep the Cubs that won a World Series the following year, and then, of course, it was thwarted by the Royals, losing that Game 5 at home, but when I think of that summer from July 31st on, what Cespedes did, that run in the postseason, it was a surprise. I didn't think the Mets were going to go to a World Series. And now let's fast forward five years later to an Islander team that a week ago, as I was on this podcast talking about a 3-1 series lead, that they were one win away from going to their first conference final since 1993, which leads to surprise number two, because I don't think in 152 previous podcasts that I've produced, hosted, edited, etc., that I've started off with hockey. But guess what? Today is the day. This Islander team, which honestly has come out of nowhere. This is a team that made it to the postseason as a seven seed going up against the Florida Panthers. Remember, they had to play an extra round. Best of five, they disposed of them in five games. Next round had to go up against a capital team that won a cup two years ago, but had just a bitter loss against Carolina last year and they were primed and ready to make a deep long postseason run they figured that they were going to regroup refocus and go ahead and try to blitz their way back to a Stanley Cup final and that was thwarted by an Islander team which pretty much sent them packing in five games to where now here we are with the Flyers and when we looked at this past week and how they lost these games in just brutal fashion game five down Two goals with four minutes and 41 seconds to go in a third period where they were able to get those two goals to push them into overtime. And then unfortunately, they lost the game five. All right, you have to live with it. Let's come back in game six and we'll see how they respond. How they respond, they're down two nothing. They come storming back, which is very surprising because I never thought the Islanders had any comeback ability ever. This is a team that I've said all along needed to have that sniper, needed to have that one player that was the guy that you could go to to get that big goal. And the Islanders, they have a few guys that may not be sexy by name, but they've been able to come up in big spots. And whether your name is Jean-Gabriel Peugeot, whether your name is Anthony Beauvillier, whether your name is Brock Nelson, these have been the guys that have chipped in and even though have not dominated and have not had those type of stats that are comparable to some of the top players in the league. You know, there are no Nathan McKinnons on this team. There are no Nikita Kucherovs. There are no Sidney Crosbys. Uh Uh-uh. Islanders don't have players like that. But the one thing they do have is a very balanced team, which is led by their defense. And even though in game six, the way they came back with that ability to take a 3-2 lead, and then the game gets pushed into overtime, where they lose not only in one, but in two overtimes there on Thursday night. And then it made me think as an Islander fan, I said, is this the way they're going to lose? Is this the way they're going to take us almost to the mountaintop, not necessarily from winning a championship, but to the point where they're going to get to the next round 
to a conference final for the first time in 27 years, and then it's just going to slip away? Well, the Islanders went back to their bread and butter there on Saturday night, and of all people, for them to have their first goal of the game scored by Scott Mayfield, a defenseman who got his first career playoff goal, nobody's going to be confusing him with Dennis Potvin, and from there, it just snowballed. Andy Green chips in with a goal, same for Brock Nelson, and when you knew there was a 3-0 lead, the defense was just going to take over, and as a fan, you were able to exhale because you knew there was no way that the Flyers are going to bounce back being down 3-0 as you're in the third period of a Game 7. And mind you, before this game, I thought to myself, this was the most important game in the franchise's history since 1993. Because as we've seen since then, whether it's the ownership, John Spano, that whole disaster that happened in the mid-90s, we know they tried to turn things around in 2001 and 2002 with Alexei Yashin and Michael Pekka, and then Charles Wong, all the rumors about them moving to Kansas City. We could go through the whole laundry list of just an aptitude that this organization has had. Mike Milbury and his terrible trades, Garth Snow, uh, it's just been comical. And then going into that game, Saturday night, I thought to myself, I said, if they lose this game, not only will this be a bitter loss, but will this franchise ever get over the hump to get themselves anywhere close to a conference final, let alone a Stanley Cup final? And to me, this was the year to do it. Because with them being up 3-1 and a Flyer team that had been floundering, and for whatever the reason, overtime was when they turned it on. And that's not to say the Islanders just gave it to them or fell flat. But when you see the Flyers win these games in overtime, it makes you think, come on, guys, can we just win this thing in regulation? The way they responded, the way they bounced back, the resiliency, etc., and even the coaching. As I said, this team is going to be defense first. And for whatever the reason, defense is their best offense because that's where they get the opportunities to score. And with the way Barry Trotz has this team clicking right now, despite the fact that they had those little slip-ups there in games five and six, but it Makes you feel a little confident going up against a team which is certainly going to be a powerhouse nonetheless in a Tampa Bay Lightning. And people are going to say, powerhouse? Geez, this isn't the Canadians of years past or the Edmonton Oilers. Well, I'll delve into the preview of that series in a minute. But when Trotz has been able to push all the right buttons here, not only just from the defensive standpoint, but just being able to take out his goalie. It's almost as if he's going with the hot guy here. Now, Semyon Volomov, he's been... Up and down, he's had some great moments here in this postseason, no doubt about it. But he did give up nine goals in those two games, in five and six. So what does he do? He puts Thomas Grice in there. Not only did he trust him, but he also trusted their defensive schemes, and they were able to suffocate the Flyers to the point of they only had 16 shots on net. Obviously, if they play like that, they could go a long way here in this Stanley Cup playoff. But that's what you love about Trotz, And just being able to do all the right things, especially this late in the postseason where he didn't panic. He showed a lot of poise. He had a lot of confidence in Grice. And who knows what Varlamov is thinking. I'm sure he's been a team guy too because you don't employ a team-first mentality if you don't have team-first mentality players. And as we looked at this team, and especially the way they performed this postseason, it's pretty much all in, next man up, that's it. It's not a thing where we had the one guy that we have to lean on or, or it's all about the goaltender or it's all about this particular defensive player. Uh-uh. It's every guy on the roster. 
And that's why when you have a team like that, that is complete. Now, are they the most complete team in the league? No. But when you're playing this way at this time, and when you have a coach like that, like I said, could they make it to a Stanley Cup final? Why not? And as we are right here on this day, to think that I've got on this team for not bringing in that one sniper and they've been the highest scoring team in this postseason to date where they've outscored their opponents 22-7 to in the third period. I mean, t- t- shake your head. I mean, you, I never would have thought that in a zillion years. You would think Mike Bossy, Brian Trottier, Pat LaFontaine, Brent Sutter, they're on the team again. But they don't have the sexy name. They don't have the guy a la the Tampa Bay Lightning. They don't have the Nikita Kucherovs. They don't have the Victor Hedmans. They don't have the goalie who won a Vesna last year and is a finalist this year and Andre Vasilevsky. Right, they don't have that star power. But what they do have is a team. And they still have another mountain to climb to get to Mount Stanley Cup. But is it insurmountable? I don't think so. But one thing as we get into this series, because of the way the teams are, Tampa has obviously more firepower than the Islanders do. The coaching and the defense. Coaching, they definitely have a plus. No offense to John Cooper. He's taken his team to a Stanley Cup final. He's been to the conference finals. He's had actually a great run there in Tampa, but they just haven't won the brass ring. And I know a lot is expected of them to win now. But with Trotz and what he's been able to do and the defense of the Islanders, they can neutralize that offense. Now, mind you, they run their lines a lot deeper than the Islanders do. Their third and fourth lines are very formidable and can be a key to the series. But for me, I look at this series twofold. One, will the layoff hurt Tampa more than help them, which is critical for the Islanders to win this first game tonight. Now, we understand no home ice. We get that a thousand percent. But you always want to win that first game, especially if you're an underdog. And not that the Lightning are a heavy favorite. I'm sure they are a formidable favorite. I'm sure there a lot of people would look to them to think that they're going to win the series. Based on some of the things I read in the last couple of days, a lot of people think the Lightning are going to win the series. There are a few people that are picking the Islanders. And the Lightning are a team that's had a track record. They went to a cup final in 2015. Actually beat the Islanders in the second round in 2015, if you remember, in five games. And forget about the regular season series. They played three games. The Islanders won two. Nobody's going to go crazy about that. I mean, that might as well happen 10 years ago. But the one thing is if they could steal that game tonight, it could go a long way. And that's not to say that if they lose game one, that they're going to lose in four or five games. I'm not saying that either. But because that they've had this momentum from Saturday night and they're playing two nights later. Now, granted, they had to leave the bubble in Toronto to fly to Edmonton. So I don't know what effect that may have on the team 48 hours after winning a Game 7 and an emotional one at that. So that's going to be something to gauge maybe in the first period or so as to what kind of legs the Islanders are going to have opposed to Tampa. Because I'm sure Tampa's probably been in Edmonton for a few days. I don't know if they left after beating the Bruins last Monday, but you would think they're acclimated to the time zone, to surroundings, environment, that bubble, more so than the Islanders are. So that's the first thing. The second thing that I look at here is who is going to be the guy for the Islanders that's going to, and I mean step up. Is it going to be Jean-Gabriel Peugeot? Is it going to be 
the captain, Anders Lee. And although he's contributed, and he's done things that you don't see in the stat sheet, but he's going to have to score some goals here. He's going to have to be that guy that's going to lead this team to a Stanley Cup final. And I'm going to look to him, not only as him being the captain, but a guy that could certainly put his fingerprints on the series. Because we've seen contributions from some of the other guys I mentioned. I didn't even mention Matthew Barzal, who is, of course, arguably the team's best player. You would expect contributions from Barzal, Brock Nelson. But to me, Anders Lee is going to be the guy that's going to really put this series to go up against the Tampa Bay Lions, Andre Palat, the Braden Points of the world. They're going to need to match that. And they could play great defense, but you could lose games 1-0 and 2-1 also. Not to say every game in the series is going to be 4-3, 5-4, etc. But they're going to have to respond the way they did against the Flyers, similar to what they've done here against the Lightning. And the Lightning actually are a very underrated defensive team. Right, am I sitting here watching Tampa Bay Lightning games over the course of this postseason? No. But in reading up on them, and knowing that, are they the Islanders? No. And the way they deploy their system, but at the same time, they're certainly not a freewheeling team that you're going to get a lot of two on ones and three on twos on the other end of the ice. To cut to the chase, people, I know that the Lightning not having Steven Stamkos could that be a big thing? Oh, obviously he's one of their top players, but they've gone this far without him, so we're not going to see him here in this Eastern Conference Final. But to me, in order for the Islanders to win this series, they're going to have to step their defense even another level higher. Pretty much similar to what you saw there Saturday night against the Flyers. Because the last thing that they can afford to do is fall behind in these games against a team that is better and even a bit defensively better than the other teams that they faced here in this postseason. So it's not going to be that easy for them to be down 2 nothing or even 3-1 late in the game as they were in game five to tie it and then go into overtime. I, I don't see that this time around. And you know me, people. If you've listened the last couple of times we've talked about the Islanders here. I didn't really talk about the Panther series. I did think that the Capitals were going to win in six. And I believe I picked the Flyers to win in six as well. Well, guess what? I'm picking the Lightning in six. You could talk reverse jinx. You could say, oh, come on, J-Reels. What are you doing? Don't bet with your head, bet with your heart. Uh-uh, uh-uh, uh I'm sticking on this train here. Let the Lightning. A lot of pressure's on that team. They've had a week off. Yes, they've put up their feet. They've rested some players. And that's fine. If the Islanders come out anything close to what they did Saturday night, I'm sure that's going to go a long way as to how they could dictate the series. And again, one game does not mean a series, as we've seen time and time again. But, And I think the Islanders will be heard from in the series, but Tampa is next level. And even if they played the Bruins, it was still going to be a tough series because those were your top two teams in the East, Flyers were frauds. I understand that they had a good season and they played well, especially from that stretch, I believe from maybe late December up until March. Because remember, they were middle of the pack until they had that big push. And then we know about the playing games around Robin where they got the one seed. But they were frauds. I mean, look, look at how they performed there in game seven. I mean, they just ran out of gas. And I understand you got to give credit to the Islanders and I have as far as their defense is concerned, but geez. So there we go, people. Lightning in six. We'll see how that shakes down. As we get ready for game one here tonight. And as far as the Western Conference. You had Dallas. Win a crazy game seven over Colorado. And Colorado did everything it could to get themselves in a series. They were down 0-2. They got themselves back from a 3-1 hole. They went to 
overtime and they ended up losing to the Stars. They had a third string goalie in Michael Hutchison that was playing for the Avalanche and he did all he could to get themselves not only back into the series but to a Game 7. And then the heroics in Game 7 by Joel Caravanta who not only scored the tying goal in regulation with 3 minutes and 30 seconds to go but then the overtime goal and the series winning goal to get his hat trick and he actually scored a hat trick in that game his first three goals in the series to propel the Stars to the Western Conference Final for the first time in 12 years when they played Detroit and they lost to them when of course Detroit went on to win the Cup that year against Pittsburgh and Vegas they got here too another team that were down that was up 3-1 and Vancouver came storming back and the crazy thing about that series real quick is that they had a goalie named Thatcher Demko. First ever playoff start. Made 42 saves. Only gave up one goal. Then he comes back in his second start and shuts him out 4 nothing in a game 6. You're thinking to yourself, geez, this is going to be the star of the postseason. A guy that nobody's ever heard of. Comes in his first start, stops 42 shots and wins 2-1. He shuts him out in game 6. And then in game 7, two and a half periods in, he's stonewalling the Golden Knights until they get a power play Shea Theodore scores and that was it then the clock struck 12 Demko who of course a lot of people will look at and say wow where did he come from to perform the way he did in those last three games in the series but the glass slipper certainly did not fit as Vegas went on to win 3-0 and then last night losing a game one where you had a goal just two and a half minutes into the game by the Stars And a lot of the Golden Knights players said it themselves that they were a little bit sluggish. They felt as if they didn't have the same passion. I don't know if it was a little hangover from the Game 7. If any team would have had a hangover, it would have been the Stars, considering what they did and how they came back and won in overtime in that Game 7. But the Golden Knights certainly didn't have it. I know Ryan Reeves is going to be suspended for a game for that one check. Reeves is a guy who is the toughest guy in the league, which probably isn't saying too much considering the way the league is. And I'm not going to go down that road, people. But... Reeves will be out for game two. So you're going to lose a little toughness there if you're a Golden Knights fan. And the Stars have had a very good run here this postseason. You got to wonder whether or not can they go to a cup final? Can they beat the Golden Knights? Now, they were only one game in. I thought that the Golden Knights would win this series. I'm going to say it's going to go seven games. Why not? I mean, that's probably like the safest thing to do. Nobody's going to get swept here or go five. You figure all these series are going to go deep. So I thought before yesterday's game that Vegas, who I actually picked to go to a cup final this year to play against the Bruins, and that's not going to happen. But So I have them winning in seven. But uh, yesterday with Anton Kudobin and his 25 saves, and like I said, with the way the Golden Knights performed there from the start, they didn't really show up until the third period where they bombarded Kudobin with 13 shots. They only had 12 shots in the first two periods. But give it up for Dallas winning a game one against the Vegas Golden Knights and we'll see what game two brings us tomorrow night as we have now entered the conference finals here of the Stanley Cup playoffs. So we'll transition from the NHL bubble to the NBA bubble and lots has shaken down in Orlando when it comes to this postseason as well as off the court news in Brooklyn which we'll uh, get to a little bit later on but the story so far of this second round is what's happening with the Bucks. I don't know if it's a thing where they're imploding or Miami is just put the hammer down on the reigning MVP and probably soon to be announced MVP in a one Giannis Antetokounmpo. Now you have to give the Heat tons of credit 
We'll talk about the game two, which was an absolute joke and how that transpired. But Giannis has been the focal point and the spotlight has been on him because for all of his dominance in the regular season these last two years, there's been a chink in the armor when it comes to him being on the open court in transition where we know he's an unstoppable force. But as we've seen in this series with the way the Heat in that transition defense, they pretty much put up that wall to stop him and they haven't had anybody else to step up other than yesterday where Chris Middleton once Attentacumpo left the game as he re-injured that right ankle. He was the only guy that saved the face of the Buck season and avoided an embarrassment because if they would have got swept in this first round, oh my goodness, that just would have been an indictment on not only just Attentacumpo, but also the coach, Budenholzer, the whole team, etc. But with a lot of the talk being not having that second fiddle, and I'm sure you heard earlier this week how I forgot who it was off the top of my head, but a lot of people think that Giannis is more of a Scottie Pippen, Robin, as opposed to a Batman. And I can see what they mean by that because Attentacumpo, his game is more predicated on running up and down the court, filling the lane, layups, dunks, etc., as opposed to him being more of a perimeter player. But I think that with a guy in Chris Middleton who's making, what, $150 million a year, he needs to step up his game, and he did yesterday, so you got to give him credit, but he's a guy that has to get out of his slumber and his head out of his rear end because he's supposed to be that second guy. Forget about Eric Bledsoe. To me, he's too up and down, and he's too erratic, even mentally between his ears at times, as we've seen in past bowl seasons, so you can't really fully 100% count on him in that regard. Brooke Lopez is a guy that certainly can contribute and has contributed, but he's not going to be the one guy that a lot of Teams are going to focus on defensively because he's just going to stand at the perimeter and try to chuck threes all day, which is typical in the NBA in this day and age, of course. And some of the other role players they have on there, you know, the Pat Contons of the world and the Kyle Corvers. I mean, those are guys that can score points, but to me, it's all Middleton. And sadly, Middleton isn't that guy that on a real good team, he's a good third or fourth option. But on the Bucs, he's number two, and he gets paid like a number two, pretty much more like a number one. But sadly, he doesn't put forth the consistent effort that he should with the money that he's making. And that's just not a knock on him. That's more of the way the system is in the NBA where these players are going to get played. Look, Tobias Harris on these Sixers, he's their, if you want to say third best player, and he's making $180 million. So it's more the system than it is the player. But at the same time, when you have a guy that's making that much money, you'd expect him to produce. And that's where the Bucks get in trouble because, right, for the regular season, they could blitz through the league and win their 60, 65 games. And in the postseason, you have this problem right here. The one thing is, and I've said this about Joel Embiid, I'm going to say this about Giannis real quick, is that Giannis, he needs to stay away from the three-point line. We understand it's a three-point league, 1,000%. But when I talk about Embiid, I'm going to say the same for Giannis. They need to focus in on his strengths. Now, the one thing if Giannis had is a pull-up jumper, he would really be unstoppable. Forget about him chucking threes. When they get into the offseason, if he's in the gym, forget about shooting a million threes a day. He needs to get that pull-up mid-range 15 to 18-foot jumper or even 12-foot jumper because if he gets into the paint, all he has to do is just pull up. The guy's 6'11", and he's a giraffe. All he has to do is just streak up the court, little pull-up, and that's it. Or if you want to go half-court, Or if you're in transition, back him down, 
I understand they're going to get double teamed. You got to kick it out. That's where Middleton and some of the other guys have to contribute and certainly take the Bucks to bigger heights. But at the same time, they're not using his strengths properly. And to me, to have Atentacumbo live on the perimeter trying to shoot threes when they're not in transition in the half court, it makes no sense. And right, I understand, well, hey, you could post them up. Of course, they're going to double him. We know about that. It'd be nice if he had a little bit of a post-up game, but that's where the mid-range jumper comes in. Because if he's able to do that, then you can forget about it. You could certainly post him up. You don't have to have him live on the three-point line. And that's where I think the Bucks would benefit this upcoming offseason if they do happen to lose in the series, which you think they are, considering they were down 3-0 and now 3-1. But for Giannis and company, I don't know if it's Budenhoser, I'm going to get to him in a second. But Giannis needs to focus in on that. He needs to make sure that in order for this team to go to that height, and he's a guy that wants to work in the gym and work hard, etc., and we see that. But he's going to have to implement that part into his game in order for his team, I think, to get to that next level. Because everybody's going to look to stonewall him in the paint, in transition, open court, and... At that point, he's going to have to kick it out, and then you're going to have your half-court offense, and then kaput. And with Budenholzer, this would be a tough loss for him. If they lose in five, if they push him to a seventh game and he loses, I would think he keeps his job. But if they lose embarrassingly here the way they did in game three, then does Budenholzer deserve to get fired? A lot of expectations, man. I hate to just say, yeah, you automatically got to fire him, but you have to wonder... I think you got to give him another shot. Last year was brutal up 2-0 and you lose to Toronto the way you did. And mind you, they went on to win the championship. We understand that. And then this year, to go down 3-0 and possibly lose in five in a conference semifinal, it's definitely not a good look. You're going backwards. And when this series, of course, you're going to look at game two and how much of a joke that ending was where Middleton gets fouled by Goran Dragic and he just had his arms up and he made the three free throws, give him credit. But then on the other end where they called a foul on Jimmy Butler right as time expired and he hits the two free throws, the game's over. And where was the foul there? It was just atrocious officiating at that point, which let's face it. I'm not going to say it robbed the game because it would have went to overtime. Who knows how it would have played out. But it didn't give him a fair shake. That's not how you end an NBA playoff game. So that goes right to the feet of the officials. And with the way the Heat have played, Jimmy Butler... Bam Adebayo, uh, they've been, to me by far, have been the surprise in the bubble here. I thought the Heat would be competitive. Listen, the Heat won their first seven postseason games. 7-0. I understand Indiana isn't any good, and they were undermanned. But what they've done here in these first four games, even with yesterday, and give it up for Middleton in overtime because they had to come from behind, no Giannis, and then he hits the big three there at 113-112. He hits that three, which pretty much iced the game. And then he hit two free throws after that, which led them to a 118-115 victory. And I, I think if you're not going to see Giannis in Game 5, either the Bucks rally around the troops and pull out a Game 5 to push it to a Game 6, or they're just going to get destroyed. I think the Bucks aren't going to come out of the series anyway. It's just a matter of, will we see Giannis in Game 5? And if we don't, how Budenholzer and the Bucks respond to that? As far as the Celtics and Raptors are concerned, 
I know if you're a Celtic fan, if they lose the series, you're going to think about those final seconds in game three where they get the basket underneath, where Kemba to Daniel Tice for the dunk at 0.5 seconds. And then the inbounds pass cross court to OG Anubi, who is not going to be confused with Steph Curry. Rattles in a three. They win the game. They have life. And then what we saw there a couple days ago where the Raptors have gotten back into the series. It's even at 2-2. Best of three now. And who knows what to expect here. Now, the Celtics should be up 3-1. We know that, but that's not the case. Now, Kemba Walker even admitted in the postgame, there's no way that he should be shooting nine field goal attempts in a game. He said it was totally unacceptable, and he's going to change that moving forward, and rightfully so. I said that in the beginning of the postseason. Yes, a lot of it is going to be on the shoulders of Jason Tatum and even Jalen Brown, but Kemba Walker is going to have to be the guy that's going to take this team over the top. And with no Gordon Hayward in the lineup, not knowing when he's going to return, Kemba is definitely going to have to assert himself. And we've seen throughout the postseason, whether it's the first round in Philly, whether it's the end of game two and how we performed there against Toronto, we know that he's going to need to get back to being Kemba, especially in this pivotal game five to where if the Celtics are going to win the series, they're going to need to Kemba deliver the mail here and take this team home to hopefully an Eastern Conference final. When we move out West, I know we had that crazy OKC Houston series, and the one thing I'm going to say about that is I mentioned last week that that game was James Harden's game that a lot of people are going to look at and see whether or not that he was going to perform on that level. And granted, offensively, he was awful. And he even admitted that in the postgame. Who would have thought that the defense would have saved the day in order for them to win that series was beyond me. And they did. And give it up. He scored 36 points in game one against the Lakers. And then even though he was efficient in the game last night, but Westbrook was just... God awful in the game. He said in the post game that he was just running around, wasn't in his comfort zone. And the Lakers, even that series, behind not only just AD and LeBron, but also if you get playoff Rajon Rondo, and not that he had a great game statistically, but he did just enough to show that if he's, his head is in the game and he's healthy, he could certainly make a difference. And that's what you saw last night with a bunch of assists, Rondo doing Rondo things, his defense. And the Lakers have even that series. And then with Denver and the Clippers, I know Denver won that crazy game, seven against the Utah Jazz. Donovan Mitchell, the only guy to, in a seven-game series, to average 35 points, 50% from the field, 50 from three, and 90% from the free throw line. And that was just a crazy ending there. Torrey Craig missing the layup, which would have iced the game, and then they came back and they had a chance to, Mike Conley with the three, to win the series, and he missed it. It was in and out. But Denver, after a lackluster game one, they bounced back there in a game two where Kawhi was awful. And he's allowed to have a bad game every now and again. But considering his dominance in game one where he shot 12 for 16 from the field, it was just the opposite. What was he, 4 for 17, I believe he was. Did not have a good game. Same for Paul George. As Jamal Murray scores 27 in game two, 28 and 16 for Nikola Jokic, who now is questionable for game three. Tonight with a sprained right wrist. So that's something to keep an eye on. I think the Clippers. It's going to be Lakers-Clippers in this. Western Conference Final. I would think that the Clippers will win. In six. And I'm going to say the same for the Lakers. I actually think the Lakers are going in five. But you figure that the Rockets. They're going to have one of those games. Where they're going to shoot the lights out of threes. I mean look at the game last night. They were 22 for 53. I think from three. 
And they still lost by eight. So when you get, I think about this, people. 22 threes in a game. So you got 66 points from three and you still lost by almost double digits. That doesn't bode well. We know that the Rockets, that's their game. That's D'Antoni's game. That's how he's been for a million years. But when you live and die by that, chances are you're going to die by it more than you live. And that's why we've seen the Rockets over the years, a team that can't be trusted. So I would think the Rockets will steal another game here. But I wouldn't be surprised if the Lakers win in five. But I'll say six. So we could get that Laker Clipper, which is going to be great. But at the same time, man, that would have been even better if the world was normal and those games were even played at the Staples Center. Because for the first time in history, you'd actually have Lakers and Clippers for games that are meaningful. As we all know, the Clippers have been a laughing stock for so many years. And the Lakers are the Lakers. They're the kings of L.A. And I'm not even talking about the hockey team. So that's what we have there with the NBA people. But before we continue, two things. I know that the, or three. One, John Morant wins your rookie of the year. No surprise there. Montrez Harrell's your sixth man. Nick Nurse is the coach of the year. And as expected, Giannis will win his back-to-back second MVP. I believe that'll be announced in the next day or so. But uh, two other things. Steve Nash, that came as an ultimate surprise. Talk about a guy that was on nobody's radar when it comes to being the next coach of the Brooklyn Nets. I know there were rumors, possibly Mark Jackson, maybe even Greg Popovich for a hot minute, which that was diffused many weeks ago, and I think we talked about it here on the podcast. But for Steve Nash, who had a relationship with Kevin Durant at Golden State, and knows a lot of the players, even though he's been retired going back to, I believe, the end of the 2014 season. But for him to be the coach of a team that, as we all know, has not had a lot of success going back to the New Jersey net days, and knowing that Kevin Durant is going to be walking through that door, a part of this team finally after a year off on the shelf with that Achilles that he suffered in the NBA Finals as a member of the Warriors against Toronto last year, a healthy Kyrie, you would think. Who knows what the roster's going to look like? You would think Spencer Dinwiddie, of course. He's been signed for a couple of years. Garrett Temple, DeAndre Jordan. We got to know about Joe Harris. Who knows about that? Jared Allen, will he be part of this team? Who knows if they are going to be dangled as trade bait in this upcoming short off season? But they do have a lot of key pieces, superstar power, star power, firepower, etc. And they're expected to go deep and long in the postseason next year. Is Steve Nash that guy that's going to do it? I know we've heard all the comparisons. Oh, we just can't dismiss this right away. Look what happened with Steve Kerr. Right, Steve Kerr came to an already loaded team. And that was before Kevin Durant got there. And people are going to look at him as the barometer as to a guy who had no coaching experience, a guy who just pretty much went from the broadcast booth to the first seat on the coaching sideline and gone to five NBA Finals. That doesn't mean that Steve Nash is going to have the same type of resume four years in as he signed for a four-year deal with these players. Not only that, he's got to deal with his media. And Steve Nash, as we all know, Hall of Fame player, two-time MVP, top point guard, uh, get all that. Nicest guy, family guy, knows Sean Marks from his days when he played at Phoenix. Sean Marks, of course, the GM of the Brooklyn Nets. But with this hire, and I'm sure endorsed by Kevin Durant and as well as Kyrie Irving, but the jury's still out on whether or not he's going to be able to coach these guys. 
where you're going to have that stretch in January where they may be on a West Coast trip and they lose four or six? And will there be some mumbles or disgruntled players? Will there be any of that? Or will there be sections of the team where you have the KD, Kyrie, DeAndre Jordan part of the locker room and then on the other side you have the Dinwiddie, Karis LeVert, Garrett Temple side of the locker room? You know, these are things that as a coach you're going to have to be able to not have any type of clubhouse lawyers or clicks. This is where you need to have everybody in on the same page. Does Steve Dash have that quality? Does he have that persona? Is he going to have that capability? We don't know that. It remains to be seen. And for him to be here in New York on the other side of the river where the Knicks, despite how awful they've been, are always the team in town, he's going to have to try to do his best to not only win over a small but burgeoning fan base and two guys that have won multiple championships where their name is Kevin Durant and we know about Kyrie Irving in Cleveland and to be able to not just be lovey-dovey during training camp or during the first month of the season or the first half of the season but through a whole season and then possibly four years where you have two guaranteed years with Kevin Durant as being your top guy even at the age of 32 years old. And a Kyrie Irving, who we all know is a dynamic point guard, but let's face it, he's starting to fall apart here at the tender age of 27, as far as his health is concerned. So a lot there to digest, a lot there to dissect when it comes to what this is going to be as far as a challenge for one Steve Nash, knowing that no coaching experience, no pedigree, and you wonder if he's going to be able to factor in all that playing experience into coaching and for it to pay off and to execute. It's a big question mark. And lastly, I got to complain about something. Is anybody tired of watching the NBA with these uniforms? I mean, how many uniforms are these teams wearing? Bad enough that the Celtics just can't wear the typical white on green and green on white. No, we got to break out the black. We got to break out the gray. We got to break out all these colors, which I'm just tired of. The Lakers have 15 different types of uniforms. The Rockets have 19 different types of uniforms. The Nuggets, the Clippers. I've had enough. Give me the old-fashioned uniforms. Just give me the purple and gold of the Lakers and yellow and the gold and purple. That's all I want. Same for the Celtics. I don't know the Clippers, they've changed their uniform schemes over the years, but they were typically red, white, and blue. Yeah, give me that. I don't want the black with the old English letters. I don't want the, I don't know. I don't want to see that. Same for the Nuggets. You know, they have that deep blue with the gold, which looks nice, but then they switch it up to the old Nugget uniforms from yesteryear, and then they just have like the plain Denver going across the front. Uh, Just stop. Can we just have one home uniform, white, and then one Road uniform that's blue, that's black, that's red, that's whatever. And I'm tired of the home team wearing the darker color. When you're watching Celtics Raptors the other day, you're watching the Celtics wear their green and white, and they're the home team, but then the Raptors are wearing the black as the road. It should be black and white, not green and black. And I'm just tired of it. I don't know if anybody else is. I know it's minor. Oh, I just, I'm sick of all these uniforms. So yeah, I just had a gripe about that, and I just had to let that one loose. But anyway... So that's what we got there with uh, both of the NHL and NBA postseasons. All right, let's fast forward to baseball. Let's get to some football. A couple other things before we say goodbye. Because I got a lot to talk about here. I have to start off with 
Tom Seaver. Now, Tom Seaver was just a smidge before my time. I remember Tom Seaver as a boy, not watching him pitches in his heyday when he was with the Mets, winning the three Cy Youngs, 69, 72, 75. Of course, the World Series is 69. That was the year I was born. But I remember Seaver, 75, watching him on WOR, even 76, watching him pitch then. 77, I remember the Midnight Maskers, if it was yesterday, June 15th, 1977. We know the whole story. Dick Young, M. Donald Grant, Tom Seaver gets traded to the Cincinnati Reds in one of the worst trades of all time. Doug Flynn, Dan Norman, Pat Zachary, Steve Henderson, just awful. <laughs> what could you say? They got zero back in return. 401, George Thomas Seaver. And I remember Seaver, number 41, the dirt on the knee, him just being dominant. Pitching that no-hitter that he did in 78, I believe it was, against the Cardinals. And I was actually in the building August 21st, 1977, his first return back to Shea Stadium as a member of the Reds. I was sitting in left field in the mezzanine as he pitched a complete game, 5-1. to one, He struck out 11. And yeah, the crowd was just going nuts for Tom Seaver. It was a sellout in a building that didn't see sellouts pretty much from the time he left until... The time he came back in 83, but even 83 was a brutal year. It wasn't until 84 when the Mets started their turnaround. This was after they traded for Keith Hernandez in the summer of 83. But I do remember Seaver and his exploits and watching the videos and being a Met fan for as long as I have. We all know that he is the franchise. There's no other player that comes close. Doesn't matter who you are. If you're Mike Piazza, Daryl Strawberry, David Wright, they are not Tom Seaver. And it's just sad he had dementia here over the course of the last couple of years, was not to make any public appearances. And on Monday night, although it wasn't announced until Wednesday, but on Monday night, that's when he had passed away, 75 years. Thoughts go out to his longtime wife, Nancy, and obviously his family. Prayers, condolences, a guy that, as I said, didn't watch until I was about six, seven years old on the old black and white. And obviously watching with the Reds and what he did after that, Came back to the Mets in 83, as we all know. Didn't have a good season then. And Frank Cashman was stupid enough to leave him on the unprotected list as far as free agents because nobody thought that anyone would sign a 39-year-old pitcher, but the White Sox did, and we know he won his 300th game at Yankee Stadium August 4th of 85. And Tom Seaver, one of the best right-handed pitchers in the history of the sport, again at 75, leaves us, as well as Lou Brock yesterday. And as I said at the top, and I keep on saying, pretty much since January 1st, since the start of this Decade. That day was the day David Stern passed away. And mind you, he wasn't a player. We understand that. But we know what David Stern did for the league when he was a commissioner going back to 1984 up until about 2010. Or maybe 2014. I may have shortchanged him a couple of years. Since then, we could go through all everybody who's passed. From Kobe to Al Kaline to... Uh, the list is on and on and on. Football players, Dale Howardchuck, we talked about him a couple weeks ago, uh, just nonstop. And here we are now with Lou Brock, who was a prolific base stealer, St. Louis Cardinal, great postseason player, just a guy that one of the more famous trades in baseball, or infamous if you lived in uh, Chicago as a Cub fan, for Ernie Brolio, Lou Brock, who got traded from the Cubs to the Cardinals and he became a Hall of Famer winning World Series in 64 and 67 and was just the leadoff hitter among leadoff hitters. You look at leadoff hitters, him and Ricky Henderson are the two best of all time where Henderson, of course, would be first, but Brock is not too far behind. Dies at the age of 81 yesterday. And of course, thoughts, prayers, condolences go out to the Brock family. 
as we lose another baseball legend and a member of the Hall of Fame. And speaking of mourning, now not to equate death with what's going on in the baseball world, but if you're a Yankee fan, I mean, how sick are you this morning when you wake up and talk about a different what a difference a week makes? Last week, you're riding high after losing the first two games of the Subway Series to where you win the back three, including that one brutal game if you're a Met fan like myself, 7-2, two outs in the ninth inning, and then Gary Sanchez, the grand slam in game two. So you had that happen. So you go into a week where, all right, you have to play the Rays, and the Rays are going to be tough because they're in first place, and they've pretty much embarrassed you all year. And they take two out of three, where in the middle game, Chapman throws a 100-mile-hour pitch at one of the Rays batters. I can't remember his name. Uh, Mark Roussel. I can't, off the top of my head, I can't remember. Even though he burned it the next night as he hit two home runs. But they take two out of three. The Tampa Yankee rivalry looks like it's going to heat up here. And I could see that being a good rivalry because they do not like each other. That goes back to when George was alive. And I'll get to him in a second. That goes back to when George was alive because when they moved from Fort Lauderdale to Tampa, this was around the time that the Rays were coming in. And once the Rays got into the American League and were part of that area, he wanted to embarrass them any way, shape, or form. And for the most part, the Yankees have done that in the 20-year or 22-year history of this franchise. But this year, the Rays have turned the tables. And when you look at this past series, by them losing two out of three and the way they lost that third game where they just bombarded, and mind you, they bombarded Garrett Cole in the first game. So let's talk about that for a second. Garrett Cole, who started out of the gate like a comet and now is starting to lose its luster there because he has just been blasted not only by Tampa but also by the Orioles over the weekend with DJ Stewart hitting home runs left and right and then for them to lose that series to the Rays you kind of think to yourself all right well we're not going to win a division they certainly have a stranglehold on it right now so they go against the Mets to play the final game of this just weird subway series this year and not only did they have a 7-4 lead and a 7-6 lead going into the 8th and ninth innings but they ended up losing that game to where Pete Alonso hits a walk-off lead-off two-run homer. Goes to show you how crazy 2020 is. And then they go to Baltimore. They have to play a doubleheader, which is their third doubleheader in eight days. And they split that to the point where they won the first game and they lose the second. And I knew that the Yankees were going to lose to the Orioles at some point. They had won 19 straight games against them. And with that doubleheader and all the games that they played throughout the course of those eight days, they were going to lose one of these games at some point. Well, not only did he lose the nightcap where Davey Garcia, who pitched phenomenally in his first game against the Mets, what a shock, who got tattooed there a little bit, knocked around in that second game, to where Cole gets bombarded on Saturday night and they lose 6-1. And then yesterday, they lose 5-1. Behind, oh, it was a 5-3. I should know the score. But they lose behind Tanaka, and he is always up and down during the regular season, to where they are in third place at the moment in the American League East. They are not going to catch the Rays this year because they're six and a half back, six in a loss. Toronto's ahead of them by a game. And guess what? 10 of the next 17 games are against the Toronto Blue Jays who are firing at all cylinders. And I'm actually a little bit surprised by the way they played. And they've made some deadline deals. They brought in Robbie Ray, a couple of other pitchers to bring onto their team to see if they can make a push. Now, Toronto's going to make the postseason. And as of right this second, the Yankees are going to make the postseason too. Because the American League, as I said last week, it's all a matter of where they fall as far as seeding is concerned. 
because all the other teams are just bad. Whether you're the Angels, whether you're the Texas Rangers, Seattle Mariners, the Royals, those teams aren't going to make it. The Red Sox, you can forget it. So pretty much you have the eight teams that are entrenched in the American League. So for the Yankee hater that thinks that they're not going to make it to the postseason, that is not going to happen. They are going to make it to the postseason. It's just a matter of are they going to play in the best of three wildcard round or by miraculously winning a division where they'll have a bye and play in a division series. So that's what you're looking at right now if you're the Yankees. And even with, now check this out. Even with all the injuries and we get that, we could point to no judge, no Stanton, obviously no Severino. We've had Zach Britton on the shelf. Chapman didn't start off the season with us. Gleyber Torres, who just came back, but he's been injured as well. Gary Sanchez, who had to be benched in order to try to get a little reset for him. And he can't even find, and of course, I say that after he hit that grand slam last week and he was batting 133 in that game. I mean, the Yankees, they cannot get out of their own way. Now, thank God for Luke Voigt and even DJ LeMay, who also has been on the injured list. If it wasn't for those guys, uh, where would this Yankee offense be? Going back to Mr. Steinbrenner, if he was the owner of this team right now, he probably would have fired, he would have fired Aaron Boone a week ago. That's number one. Well, probably not because they beat the Mets. But Aaron Boone would have been on the street. The trade deadline has come and gone, but knowing him, he'd probably try to manipulate to see if he could get somebody off the street to either pitch or hit or what, what have you. He would have fired the whole medical staff, who, mind you, even after last year with all the injuries, it still happens to, the beat goes on in 2020. But the Yankees, even with all that, and lastly, and I will say this, with Sanchez, I thought they should have traded him in the offseason. They had too much right-handed hitting, he had been so up and down, and I get that he's a catcher and he's power, or whatever, but Sanchez, there's something off with him. And if you would have traded him, and I suggested this, check the receipts, that they would have traded him for either a left-handed bat or maybe even a pitcher who still has a couple of years under contract that you could have brought in as a number three or maybe as a number four that is on the come-up, that would have fared well for the Yankees as opposed to right now, pretty much after Cole, despite how bad he is, but he's still obviously very good. But after him, Tanaka, I understand postseason when the lights are on, he shines, but you still don't know what you're going to get from him. James Paxton's another guy, a la Forrest Gump, box of chocolates, you don't know what you're going to get. Is Jordan Montgomery going to be that guy that's going to get the fourth start in game four in the division series? And let's say if you have a wild card where it's two out of three and Garrett Cole in the first game gets lit up, what's going to happen then? Are you going to really trust Tanaka? Paxton? Jay Happ? That's why the Yankee pitching, and their bullpen's been awful too. Chapman has been just an abomination. But the Yankees, as many question marks as they have, they're still going to make it to the postseason. But you do have to wonder whether or not this team is going to have enough or have what it takes, whether they can get their guys back healthy enough to play maybe in the last couple weeks of the season or even the final week. Because they have to have Judge back for that final week. Take your time. Stanton, same deal. They they have to get these guys back because there's no way they're not going to make it to a World Series with these guys not in the lineup. And I've talked to one Yankee fan in particular, and he's a diehard, and he's objective. He doesn't have the pinstripe pom-poms out every five seconds. He feels as if, you know, if they lose in the first round, he'll be sick, but at the same time, he looks at it as like, well, they deserve it. Injuries or no injuries. Because with the way this team got out of the gate, 8-1, and one, 16 and 6, and now they've fallen flat in their face. The only direction they could go is up. But now they have Toronto, an upstart team, 
and I said it again, and it's not a, a typo, or I'm certainly not talking out of context. 10 of the next 17 games are with Toronto. So if you're a Yankee fan right now, and if you want to look at trying to at least get the secure that top two in the AL East, these are the games you have to win right now. So definitely, if you're a Yankee fan, I know you're frustrated, angry, chomping at the bit, sweating a little bit, but guess what? Now is where the season begins. And hopefully you can get some of these guys back along the way and get, go into October with a wing and a prayer to see if they could get themselves hot at the right time and make that World Series run because let's face it, anything short of a World Series is a disaster. I don't care if no, I don't care if I'm playing right field on that team. It's a disaster. And as we go through baseball, as I said with the American League, the Central is interesting too because when we're talking about seeding, that's one division that you're going to look at. And with the way the White Sox have played, and they have uh, definitely been a team just like the Padres have a young team, young nucleus that are on the come up. And the White Sox right now, although they're a half game ahead of the Indians and a game and a half of the Twins, they're going to have a very interesting schedule up ahead as they have the Twins for four games starting next Monday. And then the week after that, they have the Indians for four games. So those are the two notable series left for the White Sox as we look ahead for the last three weeks of the season. Cleveland has Minnesota this weekend and then they play the White Sox, as I said, starting next Monday. Oh, I'm sorry, the following Monday. I take that back. And then we have the Twins who have the White Sox and Indians upcoming here in the near future. So all those teams are going to play one another. We'll see how the division shapes up because, again, you want to get those top two seeds to get yourself into the postseason where if you're the 7-8, and eight, you're going to have to play a best of three and that's going to be tricky depending on how who you play and how your rotation shapes up by then. So that's one division to look at. And then even in the West, where Houston and Oakland are going to play five times in the next four days. In Oakland, one of those games is the makeup game. If you recall from a couple weeks back, the A's and Astros had canceled the game due to the Jacob Blake shooting in Wisconsin. So they're going to make up that game as an Astro home game tomorrow as part of a doubleheader. So that's going to be interesting to see what those five games are. The Astros who just came off of the hands of a sweep this weekend at the Anaheim Angels, of all places, and of all teams. So this five-game series will go a long way to see whether or not that they could overtake the A's in the AL West. Even if it does, it doesn't matter. They're going to make it to the postseason. They're going to have the two-seed locked up. I don't care what the Mariners have done here, winning five in a row and are three games back of the Astros. And then maybe you could look at Seattle and Houston playing down the stretch, but I, I, I don't think the Mariners are going to be long for any playoff or pennant fever here in these final three weeks of the season and as we've said last week the National League is a little bit more open from this regard the Mets even for all their foibles they're two and a half games behind the eighth seed as of right now and it is all up in the air when it comes to the National League unlike the American League the Dodgers they're right now the class not only the National League but of baseball And you look at what the Padres have done here with Tatis Jr. hitting more home runs, especially at the tender age of 21 that he is. The Cubs, although coming off the heels of a sweep against the Cardinals, well, as a matter of fact, they actually play the wraparound series where they'll conclude their series today at Wrigley. So they did sweep the first three games, but it is a four-game set. So the Cardinals look to keep themselves in second place, even 
by only playing 32 games where most teams have played over 40. And we'll see how many games they're going to make up here over the course of this the last three weeks of the season. So you got to keep that in mind. And what happened to Christian Yelich? Talk about a guy who's falling off the face of the earth. Nine homers, 18 RBI. He's batting 202. What has happened with him? He signed for the big money last year, $188 million, And now he's performing as if he's a you know, AAA player or, or a 4A player. So I don't know what's happened with him this year. And the Brewers, they, other than Josh Hader, who's been pretty much their team MVP. But the Brewers have struggled to stay afloat. And then the East is going to be interesting to see how the Phillies, who have lost these last two games against the Mets, and they'll conclude their series out of City Field today. Mets, I don't have much to add. I mean, what could you say? I mean, other than what happened with Tom Seaver being the face of the franchise, the Mets, they're just going to continue to tease. Just like they did against the Yankees the other day. The series so far, they lost Friday night the way they did, and then they won the two games. They'll probably lose today, and then they'll have you on a string back and forth, up and down, as they usually do. But that's what you have there with baseball. And the Braves, right now, three games ahead. I'm sure they have another series with the Phillies upcoming. But... Not a lot of drama from what I can see right now. I guess when you're looking at the bottom of the wild card, and we'll get into that more next week as far as those seven and eight teams and how many teams will be in the mix for those final two playoff spots. As we get a little bit deeper into this month, we'll take a look at that. And uh, yeah, that's what we have there pretty much with baseball. I know Mike Trout hit his 300th home run if you're jumping up and down about that. For the Angel fan out there, the Brian Murray to the Kevin Christopher. All right, let's move our attention to the NFL and yes. Is everybody ready for some football? If you know your boy Jay Reels, I am not. Not only because fall is just right around the corner, but I've never been one to be amped up for a football season. No matter how good, how great the prospects of my favorite team, the Pittsburgh Steelers are, I certainly, I don't wrap my arms around a football season until I probably get into late September into October. Because right now I'm wrapped up in the baseball, and with this year being as unusual as it is with the Islanders now in the conference final and an NBA season where we're in the conference semis and the Celtics are a part of it. The Steelers are the last thing I'm thinking about. Even though next Monday night they'll play the Giants across the river with no fans, will I be watching? Absolutely. It's not as if I'm not going to watch, but at the same time, I'm not like, all right, let's do it. Let's get it. Come on. Because you got to remember something, people. I'm not a fantasy football guy. I don't gamble. That's not my thing. And I'll say this for the newcomer to my show. I get fantasy football is all the rage. Everybody loves it. And people have, over the years, come on, Jay Reels, as much as you love sports, as much as you love football, come on, fantasy football. I would not do that at gunpoint. To me, it's immoral. To me, I would focus on choosing players that do not play against the Pittsburgh Steelers because I am not one to be watching my game and having to root for the other team to score three touchdowns or rush for 150 yards or throw for nine touchdowns or catch. No, 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 no. What's the point? Why? I want them to shut them down. I don't want them to get no yards. I want them to get no touchdowns. I want them, I don't, nothing. I'm sorry. So for those out there that do it, God bless you. Carry on. Me, uh-uh. There is no way I would even get into fantasy football for that reason. So now the season up ahead and I'll come back here on Thursday to handicap the NFL season. It's going to be one unlike we've ever seen because we've had no preseason games. We've had no type of grasp of what to expect from some of these teams coming out of training camp not a lot of players have been injured you've had some injuries here and there with some teams but nothing to the like of where it's going to set a team back and I've said this before and I'll say it again 
Forget about the lackluster play in the start. I won't be surprised if you've seen a ton of injuries in these first few weeks. Not that I'm hoping for it or expecting it, but I would not be surprised. So you have that to look forward to. And also, to the NFL fan, I'm going to say this now, I'll say it again. For those out there killing the NBA, baseball to a lesser degree, maybe even the NHL, but mostly the NBA with the whole Black Lives Matter and the anthem and so on and so forth, and nobody's going to be in the stadium, we get that, or who knows, I'm sure they're probably going to have 15,000 in Kansas City. And if they show the anthem, if players are going to be kneeling, and you know they're going to be, I don't want to hear any boos. I don't want to hear, I'm sick of football. All the football players just as entitled, blah, blah, blah. Then don't watch football. Don't watch it. As a matter of fact, scrap your fantasy team. Take your gambling sheet of who you bet on this week. Throw that in the garbage. Take your Sunday NFL package. Cancel that. Don't even think about going to the sports bar with your buddies, to wings and beer. No, no, no. Throw that all in the garbage. Don't even root it. Don't even watch. Please, spare us all. And I'm going to post that on social media all week because I'm just furious with the way people just want to dispose sports and whatever. And that's their right. I'm not saying it, you know, if they don't want to watch sports ever again or watch football, that's fine. But at the same time, don't have this energy for the NBA that now for the impenetrable shield that is the NFL that it can't happen here. And when it does happen, I don't want to hear your mouth. So that's it. As far as the over-unders, I'm going to have a little fun with this. I'm going to talk about this more on Thursday. But the team that has the highest number of over-under numbers, and the one thing I got to look at, Baltimore, 11 and a half, that's high. You could say 14 and 2 last year. You could say schedules, they're easiest in the NFL. You could say the reigning MVP. I don't know about that. Also, high on that list, Kansas City Chiefs, 11 and a half. You think that's going to be a slam dunk? For the first time in God knows how long, New England's a nine. They're always 10 and a half or 11 and a half with their over under number. Uh, to quickly go through it, Arizona, seven and a half. I think that's a little high. Atlanta, seven and a half. Buffalo, nine. Carolina, five and a half. Chicago, eight and a half. Cincinnati, five and a half. Cleveland, eight and a half. Dallas, nine and a half. Denver, seven and a half. Detroit, six and a half. Green Bay, nine. Houston, seven and a half. I think that's actually a little low for Houston. Indy, nine. Jacksonville, four and a half. Vegas Raiders. Ugh. Don't like the way that sounds. Seven and a half. Chargers, seven and a half. Rams, nine. Dolphins, six and a half. Who, by the way, they're going to start Fitzpatrick over Tua. Vikings, nine. Pats, nine. Saints, ten and a half. Giants, six and a half. Jets, seven. Eagles, nine and a half. Steelers, nine and a half. Niners, ten and a half. Seahawks, nine. Tampa, nine and a half. Tennessee, eight and a half. And the Washingtonians, as I'll call them, five and a half. A couple that stick out, I... Texans seven and a half. That, that to me, that I mean, I could I, when I see that, I say what? Jacksonville's awful. I get that the Colts and also Tennessee in the division. I understand that, but you would think they win nine. And as much as Tennessee has made some moves here, re-signing Henry, are you going to trust Tannehill for a whole year? Sketchy. And then even though they brought in Clowney now over the weekend, we know Clowney he could be dominant one game and then he's invisible the next. But to me, that number looks low. Uh, there's a couple of numbers that stick out that I look at here. Denver seven and a half. Is everybody going to think Drew Locke's going to be the answer there in this first year? They're going to go eight and eight. Uh, to me, that that has underwritten all over it. Raiders seven and a half. That may be a little high. But the funny thing is, it's kind of tough to gauge because you don't know how these players have performed here during the preseason. And not to say that whatever these players do in the preseason is going to translate into the regular season, no matter how poorly or how. Great they do, but at least you have an idea. This year, 
you're going in blind. You're just going based on reputation, pretty much. Jets at seven. Interesting numbers, which I'll get into more on Thursday as we go through the whole NFL, and I'll strictly be an NFL podcast. But you had a lot of other signings and cuts here as we get into this regular season. Joe Mixon signed a four-year, $48 million deal, which I was surprised. A Mixon who... We know coming out of college had his baggage and does have some talent, but to, to get all that money right away was very surprising considering the climate when you look at a guy like Alvin Kamara who's had, although he's diffused it, but we know that the contract has been a big thing for him and certainly has been a very productive player in this league and how he hasn't received this contract just yet. But a lot of other players, whether you're Deshaun Watson, four four hundred sixty million, so we know he's going to be the guy moving forward there in Houston. Jadavius White of the Bills is your highest paid cornerback in the league right now. Keenan Allen received a four-year deal for the Chargers. Leonard Fournette signs with Tampa, which that's going to be a huge bump for them as far as the ground game is concerned. And also Tampa signed Josh Rosen, which I thought was a very smart pickup, only because he could work under Brady. He's a guy that drafted by Arizona, then he gets tossed aside for Kyler Murray, goes to Miami, doesn't do anything there with Tua being drafted. Now he's also one man's trash is another man's treasure. And he landed in the right spot, if you ask me. And he's a fifth quarterback on a practice squad because he got a zillion quarterbacks there. But if he just holds the clipboard and has the earpiece and follows Tom Brady over the course of this year, you would think that would at least do him well from a experience and learning standpoint we all know he has to do it on the field but that will certainly go miles ahead of be just a tremendous boost for a kid who has not been able to catch a break here and just unfortunate so let's see if he can be able to pan out down the road in Tampa as their future quarterback so I thought just a very good signing for them to have that type of backup obviously he's going to mount anything we will certainly have to wait it out and see how it unfolds Cam Newton says it's a match made in heaven in New England. We'll see about that. Uh, I hope he does well. I'm not trying to say he's not going to do well. but And then uh, what else we have? Adrian Peterson, who got cut by Washington, running back by committee. They had four guys under the age of 27 in camp, but he signs with the Lions. So let's see what he does as he goes back to the NFC North, where he reigned supreme all those years in Minnesota. Steelers waived Devlin Hodges, and they brought back Josh Dobbs. Eh, no big deal, but they did sign Cameron Hayward to a big deal. What was it, five years, $65 million, which was a lot considering he's 31 years old. They still have to look to pay T.J. Watt down the road at some point. We know Bud Dupree is another guy who's on a franchise tag right now pretty soon. They still have a few years away to go for Minka Fitzpatrick. We would think but that's down the road, but there's still a lot of players on the Steelers that are going to need to be signed. But right now, getting Hayward in there was enormous because they didn't want to have any contract squabbles with him despite the fact that he is in his 30s and is getting his payday now. So that's what we got there with the NFL people. Looking forward to it. Should be fun. Opening week coming up here. And we know the highlight games. Dallas opening up the new stadium Sunday night game. Tampa at New Orleans is your Saturday or Sunday afternoon 425 slot. And the Monday night games is the Giants and Steelers. And Tennessee and Denver is your nightcap ESPN a week from tonight. All right, lastly, let me get to this U.S. Open situation with Novak Djokovic. And 
I was shocked when I saw breaking news how he was uh, going to be defaulting from this tournament because of something he did in the first set, which he was actually down at the time. So he takes a tennis ball and he swatted it out of bounds, but he swatted it in the direction of a line judge where it hit it right in the face. And Joe, it was a total accident. I mean, Djokovic even had his arm up and thinking, oh, geez, and walked over and made sure she was okay. But that's something you just cannot do on a tennis court. And you wonder, okay, well, what if he hit that tennis ball and it just it didn't hit anybody or just hit the wall? Would he have been fined? Would he have, same result would have happened? Probably not as far as the result, but because it hit a line judge, uh, he should have known better. That was a rookie move by a guy who, as we all know, is one of the all-time greats. And with that, he had to be disqualified. I guess that's in the rules. Uh, it must be at some point. I don't think it was voluntarily done by Djokovic to step down from this tournament. But needless to say, you're going to have a weird in this weird year that we have. You're going to have a men's champion not named Novak Djokovic, Rafael Nadal, or Roger Federer. So whomever that's going to be, will there be an asterisk next to it when it's all said and done? I guess it's up to the fan. Am I going to look at it as an asterisk? Damn right I am, because unless anybody was going to go ahead and beat the Joker, he was going to win this championship in his sleep. And you have to put it up there that whomever wins this, I mean, I could show up tomorrow and win the U.S. Open. People are going to laugh at it. Who's this Jason Azario? He ended up winning. If he faced Djokovic, he would have been wiped the whole tennis court with this guy. But that's not the case. Obviously, I don't know. I mean, you could have me be in the finals and win this thing. Yes, will I hold that trophy over my head and be ecstatic? Absolutely. But at the same time, I know that, hey, chances are I wouldn't have won this thing if Djokovic wasn't here. So you do have to take that with a grain of salt. So my answer to that is a resounding yes. And on the women's side, we'll see what happens. It was a shame that Coco Goff lost in the very first match, first round, first time ever. And a lot of people thought maybe with no support from the crowd, which he had become a darling, especially in the last year or so, even last year at the tournament when she went to the fourth round and faced uh, Naomi Osaka. So without a crowd and without any type of fan support, we wonder if that was a detriment to her not being able to push and move forward past this opening round. So Goff exited stage right exactly out of the gate. And then we have Serena, who's still there, and a lot of people think that she could get a 24th. Grand Slam, which would tie Margaret Court all time, as we talked about last week. You also had the number one player in the women's side gone, so you both number ones are out. Carolina Pliskova, which she lost in the second round to Caroline Garcia. So uh, 2020 cannot be more topsy-turvy, and in this case with tennis, yes, you're not going to have a number one win this year on the men's or women's side. Serena has a chance. Who knows? I couldn't even tell you from the men's right now who's even left. Is Andy Murray still around? I guess he is. Maybe he's the front runner to win. I tell you, just a, a microcosm of what this year is and just in the world of tennis. First one ever since the Australian. Certainly not what they expect, I'm sure, when it comes to the big names and the players that carry the sport, not having them there at the end. And who knows with Serena, we'll see. But uh, certainly not one that they uh, would have liked to have written up or one that they would want to remember up until this point. Here in this uh, 2020 US Open. And then lastly with the Derby. And I didn't talk about this last week. But I'll touch on this real quick. The Derby which 
Tis the Law won the Belmont in late June. And having this long layoff thinking that Tis the Law, who came into this as a resounding favorite, ends up losing to Authentic in an upset where now you're not going to have any drama going into the Preakness, which is October 3rd. You had no fans at the Derby, which looked eerie and just strange. When you think of the Derby, you just think of the sideshow, the people, the costumes, the derbies, of course, that are worn with the men and women that show up as spectators at Churchill Downs. You didn't have any of that. No pomp and circumstance. So it definitely did. It didn't even seem like an event, to say the least. And bad job by me, as this was an afterthought this year. We all know. Due to COVID, it was postponed the first Saturday of May, and now here we were in the first Saturday of September. That I it wasn't even on my radar last week to even discuss. But Tis the Law, who looked like a triple crown threat after dominating the Belmont, looking to go into Kentucky Derby and securing the second leg of this. Well, you can forget about it, and chances are you're not gonna see Tis the Law a month from now at Pimlico in Maryland to go up against Authentic or any other horses on the field. Well, that's what you have with the Kentucky Derby, which was unlike anyone that we've ever seen. And we can only hope that come seven, eight months from now, that it will get back close to what it once was because we all know it's it's a spectacle. It's a huge event. Pretty much kicks off the spring, even though with all the playoffs of the NBA, NHL, the NFL draft, the baseball season, that pretty much ushers in spring, but we all know once we get into May, that's when it really kicks into overdrive. So we'll see if I have any semblance of that at Churchill Downs next year. All right, now to my hero and zero of the week. My hero of the week is going to Kirk Herbstreet. Yes, of ESPN College Game Day. Got to give it up to him for sharing his thoughts on what's happening in this country with the police brutality and the racial inequality, injustice, etc. Getting emotional on live TV with everybody there, the Lee Corsos, the Desmond Howards, the whole staff there, saying that we all have to do better. Raw, unscripted, from the heart. I loved it. Good for him to put that out there. Everybody loves college game day. I don't really watch it. I, I don't even watch the NFL countdown and all that other stuff. To me, it's a waste of time. But for those who are getting into college football, as it did officially start this past weekend, but for him to come out and say what he said and very emotional, tearful, Etc. He is my hero of the week. And my zero of the week, as silly as this may sound, I'm going to give it to Nats GM Mike Rizzo. He may have been in the press box or in the luxury suite by himself and nobody around, but for him not to have a mask and to be thrown out of a game from the umpires on the field, that's as bad as it gets. So even if he was the only guy on that level up there or the only guy in the suite, For him to be shown on TV without a mask and for the umpire to spot that and to throw him out of the game? What is that about? To me, that has zero written all over it. So unfortunately, Mr. Rizzo, you are my zero of the week. All right, so that'll do it. Episode 153 in the books, but I'll be back later on in the week on Thursday on the day of when the NFL season will raise its curtain and have its fingers crossed to go through a whole season not being affected by covid as we've seen, all the other sports have been deeply affected. Let's see if the NFL, who have been pretty much scot-free, pretty much since March 12th when this whole thing started and we're still going through. Now, the NFL will be front and center with COVID. But with that being said, I'll get into everything. 
preview the season, go through the divisions, predictions, etc. From soup to nuts, everything about this NFL season that you're looking to shake a stick at and chomp at the bit to listen to, you'll hear it all on my podcast upcoming later on in the week. And for those who have not done so as of yet, I would inquire you to please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. All that's going to do is increase the visibility of this podcast among the many others that are out there. And if you do listen to the podcast, which I'm sure you are because you're listening to me right now, you know that there are just tons and tons and tons, just a multitude of podcasts out there. And with me independently producing, hosting, editing, and writing this podcast, all I'm trying to do is get the name out. And with your participation in doing so, whether you do so on Apple, Google Play, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, again, I greatly appreciate it if you could do so. I'm trying to get the guests on, whether it's the former athlete, current athlete, the broadcaster, blogger, studio host, whomever it may be, to share their experience of what they've been through on these airwaves so I can share with you guys, just so I could generate some more interest and visibility of this podcast. So if you could do your part by subscribing, rating, and reviewing it, I would greatly appreciate it. Also, you can follow me on any of my social media accounts on Instagram, J Reels, or the J Reels Podcast, which is strictly sports. On Twitter, J Reels One, just the number. The J Reels Podcast on Facebook. And if you want to send me an email the old fashioned way, you could do so at the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. Please, any questions, comments, criticism, praise, whatever it may be, just send it my way. I'll be sure to follow up with you guys. And then if you want to support my work and what I do behind the scenes, this I would greatly appreciate as well. You could go to my Patreon page. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the J Reels Podcast. Anything that has to do with the production of this podcast and what I do to keep it going, whether it's to keep the website up and running, production, equipment, etc. Because all I want to do, people, as I've done for 153 episodes, is produce 153,000 more. Because I love to talk about everything that's happening on the world of the diamond, the world of the ice, the world of the gridiron, the world of the hardwood. The golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time, this coming Thursday, as I preview the 2020 NFL season, until then, on the flip, baby. <laughs>